Ken Campbell. The Seekers Podcast. Welcome to Ken Campbell, the Seekers podcast, hosted by me, Daisy Campbell, Ken's daughter, and David Bramwell. Ken Campbell was one of a kind, an unconventional performer, wordsmith, theatre director, comedian, trickster, and creative powerhouse. For this unique series, we'll be plundering Ken's archive to bring you the best recordings of his one-man shows, as well as other selected treats. So this episode, Daisy, is... It's an audio letter, I guess you'd call it. It's to um, counterculture legend Robert Anton Wilson, who was also known as Bob. And, uh, and it's kind of a letter to keep Bob up to date with, uh, with all the latest capers that Ken's been getting up to. It was recorded at uh, Ken's home in Epping Forest, uh, where he lived uh, in the latter years of his life. It was uh, recorded in 2006 by his trusted ally, James Nye. Brownie, I, I don't use that door. Come around here. Here's the thing I want to show you. Where I'm talking about is, uh, it's about 40 minutes, 40 minutes drive from Turin Airport. And uh, it's halfway up a mountain. And if you've seen the name of the rose, it's the next mountain along from the location mountain of the name of the rose. And the people we're visiting call themselves the Nation of Damanhur. This is about uh, 500, 600 folk. They're kind of um, artists, engineers, thinkers, philosophers, this kind of thing. And uh, when the moment had seemed right, halfway up this mountain, half a dozen or so of them uh, had started to make a hole. They'd scrabbled a kind of little hole into the mountain. And this uh, progressed, all in secret. And the secret half a dozen grew to a secret hundred and they carried on making this hole this project hole in the mountain and then they got shortly before our visit they'd been betrayed someone uh, some geezer who'd worked on the project early on he said if you don't give me half a million dollars american i'm going to tell the world what you're up to in the mountain with your hole and they said well, we're not giving you any half a million dollars american at all and so it got out what they were up to and they got a a visit from the uh, military and the carabinieri. Anyway, they were astounded. What they'd come up with in this mountain was the eighth wonder of the world. It's enormous. I mean, there were no caves involved or anything. They burrowed into this thing. And it's about uh, three or four times the size of the whole National Theatre complex in there. And uh, this kind of labyrinths and... It's a bit like an Indiana Jones business. I'll tell you something, they, they got into trouble because they hadn't had planning permission for the eighth wonder of the world. At the time we visited them, they were still going from court case to court case because the, the local uh, council reckoned that they must own it since they were the people off whom they should have got the, got the permission. But um, after this interview, they, they got, went to their final, final hearing and the judge said, um, he, he said, well, of course it's yours, he said. He said, I'm very pleased you didn't ask for planning permission because I happen to know you wouldn't have got it. 
you know, I think he joined the Damina Appreciation Society. But, yeah, so I kind of, uh, I kind of kept in touch with the nation of Damina. I never went back there. Not to, uh, but I used to see Asperity particularly. When when Asperity is kind of the the uh, the public face of. Uh, the uh, nation of Davina. When she would be, when she was in um, London, I'd, I'd sometimes see her. But it was uh, know, probably just over a year ago. Esperity was round, and she had this film script. Evidently, there was now the the notion that there would there should be a like a Hollywood movie, a Hollywood uh, feature movie. Uh, made about Damina with, I don't know, Tom Hanks or something, playing Alberto maybe, that sort of thing. And she, she showed me, I thought she lent it to me, she lent me this script. What had happened was uh, Esperity had been lecturing in Los Angeles, you know, about the goings-on at Damina, and someone had come up to her afterwards and said, you know, there ought to be a full movie made about uh, you guys, and so... And she was a kind of a producer lady, and she found this uh, author, uh, screenwriter, Dawn Aldridge, I think was uh, responsible for... I think she was the creator creator of Love Boat, Dawn Aldridge. Anyway, uh, they went and uh, researched into Dam and Her, and then together with Esperity, had come up with this script, which for some reason is called Liba S. And... I read it, and I, I said to Esperity, I said, "Listen, I'm, I'm a, uh, a her enthusiast, you know. So I found it extremely interesting. I said, there's a, a lot in here I didn't know about you. I said, I don't think it really holds together as a movie. I think if someone actually was persuaded to make this movie, I said, I think you'd be disappointed in it. And she said, I agree. And she said, so, she said to me, could I help her with it? And I said, well, I don't know, may, uh, maybe. Anyway, so she invited me back to Dam and Her, and I uh, stayed there a week. And I, went, I was going, every day I was going over little bits of this and trying to think of how it might, it might be better. And I'd say things like, you see, look, look, this is actually contradictory with this, really, to me, and so forth, so forth. And Esperity said, yes, she said, you're right. She said, and I'll tell you why that is. She said, we decided that it would be best not to tell the real story of Dam and her, what we're kind of really up to, because it would be too confusing or something for the audience, you see. Um, she said, but I'm not sure I'm right. I said, listen, I can't comment on this unless you... Uh, you know, unless you're going to tell me, so what is the real story of Dam and Her? She said, okay. And it goes sunning like this. Um, apparently, human life uh, is finished on the planet Earth. And the year is not, um, well, she was talking last year, so the year was not 2003. Human life having finished. Now, we know that human life finished from the galactic conference of the year 2610. Yeah. 
it was a galactic conference of uh, humans. Now, by humans, evidently, we're not talking about people who, you know, who uh, look like us. Apparently, it's uh, very unusual for the human form to be this kind of um, ape-style business that uh, it's adopted here. It's more usually um, insectoidal. <laughs> some like trees. Uh, some some look like Westcliff on sea. Anyway, and it's galactic, she said. Not intergalactic, galactic. And uh, anyway, at the uh, at the conference in 2610, it, the the going of all human life on the planet Earth was regretted because apparently, years ago. <clears throat> humans had been pretty sparky at these events, but this is this is long ago. This is uh, um, the Atlanteans. The Atlanteans used to go to these uh, do's, but uh, we've really not been represented um, since then. And also, also, the going of human life on Earth was regrettable. Uh, they were they were saying at the conference, um, <clears throat> because Earth was kind of handy as some kind of portal or gateway. People going for something else but then someone at the meeting said yeah but we I mean we could in a way uh, have human life back on earth if someone had the courage to go back in time along the synchronic lines of synchronic tubings or something and go back in time and get reborn as an actual uh, human baby. And people say, well, that's a dodgy idea, actually. It might work, might not, you know. And also, do you know what I mean? The whole trauma and drama of getting born as a, an earthling babe, do you know what I mean? You'd be likely to forget what you'd, you'd done it for. But anyway, somebody, I don't know if it was an insect or what, it said, yeah, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a shot. And uh, did indeed come back down the synchronic... Uh, Tubings, synchronic lines, and was uh, born to Mr. and Mrs. Air Audi in the Piedmont uh, area, I think, of um, northern Italy. Um, Mrs. Air Audi, I think, ran the the inn there. Uh, Mr. Air Audi, being a brave, uh, a brave partisan in the in the war. Anyway, the the young Eraudi child called Oberto um, showed many a precocious signs as a as a little lad. He was able to levitate his schoolmates. He'd be able to tell you what was in your your lunchbox without you opened it, and um, he could um, cause apparitions to appear at, at football matches. He also invented a a rocket propelled bicycle which uh, was able to overtake a Fiat going up, a Fiat car going up up one of the hills also shortly after he was born a strange old man arrived with a lot of old tomes and books which was evidently for young Oberto and these were put in a loft and uh, went at a a young age, Oberto came upon them. He opened one of them, and it, and all the information danced off the pages and 
entered his body and that particular volume uh, disintegrated. Also, I think when he was at the age of 16, he was visited by himself, aged 30, um, who gave him some advice. But I think, I think he'd come to have a look at, uh, uh, at some bit of the book that he'd forgotten about. This is a curiosity, because when Oberto got to the age of 30, he didn't go back. Anyway, then in his... Um, he was young, I don't know, 18 or 19 or something... I think he founded a, an outfit called the Horus Society in Turin. Now listen, I didn't know this, but Turin has got an extremely ancient history. Uh, it goes back, well, some say, before ancient Egypt, uh, with all its uh, magic and wizardry and witchcraft and, and uh, whatnot. Anyway, he founded the Horus Society. And then he hived off some bunch from the Horus Society and they went off looking for their own, their own place, uh, which was, uh, it was round and about that, uh, that mountain where you, you saw that stuff. Anyway, um, so the, but his job as he, as, he, as he began to recall it was the, the heaving up of a new timeline. Do you see what I mean? That, so that we cease to be on this disastrous course we were now on. I asked his Sperity why, I mean, like what had happened? I mean, why did we get on such a disastrous course that we were all uh, gone and uh, dead and finished by 2610? And she said, well, it's due to what, what they call the community, the, the, the nation of Dam and her, the enemy of mankind. I, I said, who is, who is this enemy of mankind? She, well, she, said, it, it's, she said, it's in us. She said, the enemy of mankind is us and, and in us. And that's the problem. Anyway, we fell foul of the, the enemy of mankind. Anyway, the job is to heave up this new plane of reality, this, this new timeline. This is not an easy thing to do. And Alberto knew he'd, he'd got to get hold of some of the knowledge that was around back in the days of old Atlantis. Evidently, the old Atlanteans um, had got on with, with uh, time travel and stuff, um, you know, and were able, to, as I say, to go to the galactic meetings. They were quite ahead uh, in, in a lot of ways. And so that's why they'd... Um, why Alberto had started all this time travel business inside the mountain there, and, and uh, Esperity showed it to me. They've got this time travel apparatus. You know, like you go in and uh, you have to go in the thing naked because they can't make clothes go back in time. You know, and you go to nothing and go to a, t a time elsewhere. And particularly, there'd been these uh, trips made back to Atlantis to kind of ransack the libraries and the knowledge there for more uh, data on how to heave up the new, the new uh, I don't know what to call it, a new plane of reality timeline, that, you know, one where, whereby human life might uh, con continue on Earth. And, and evidently, you know, if everybody in the world today said, yeah, rah, rah, this is a fine thing, we must all do, it, this, this, it still wouldn't work. Evidently, you know, like the heaving up of a new plane of reality, it gets so far, it's got a huge desire to flap backwards. You need more than, more than um, mankind's efforts it would take. What you need is the help of the gods. Now, by the gods, uh, she informed me, she meant all of them. 
the whole bleeding lot, everything that had ever been worshipped since the year Yonk, had to be awoken. These uh, these things kind of are. Um, evidently, the things you told me is you can't deal with God direct. You need divinities. And the thing we've uh, to be doing is to, and what the world well, we've to be doing it, but this is what they're up to in the mountain, is going through this enormous catalogue. I mean, how many? I don't know, a million other things. These, um, these tech gods to waken them up to, you know, help us with the mighty project. And so I said to Isperity, in my view, you should tell the whole story. <laughs> that's, that's what I think. Anyway, I started in, when I got back, I thought I was uh, kind of um, helping her in various ways or getting ready to help her, I suppose. As actual fact, I kind of was beginning to uh, resent it a bit because really I felt I ought to be getting on with my movie. I've got this movie, I've been myself thinking that I'm for the last 20 years or so should be made, which is the, the movie of the, of the Laughing Jesus. The Laughing Jesus, I'd, uh, I discovered all about him. What? My chair's broke again, James. Uh, in the in the in the Nag Hammadi library, isn't <laughs> there's, there's another thing before I get onto the laughing Jesus, in the in the bit, thunder perfect mind, do you know this bit? It's it's it's, it's, it's all things like this. I am the whore and the holy one. I am the wife and the virgin. I am the bride and the bridegroom. I mean, I particularly like this because um, I have this notion about myself that um, I'm kind of two people. If I can show you, like, um, it's like on, on this, this side of my face, do you see? This side of my face, I think of myself as Elsie, a sort of inept housewife. Do you know, not, not unintelligent, but not at all a forceful woman. Whereas on this side, this is a side of the spanking squire. This is a... Um, I mean, like the senior geezer of the village who chastises the young ladies there, whether they've been uh, naughty or naughty or not. You know, like the spanking squire and Elsie, the housewife. And I'm, I'm trying this, you see. I am the whore and the holy one. See, I am the whore and the holy one. I sometimes go through thunder, the perfect mind, testing out my face. Yeah, I. I'm the wife and the virgin, yes. I am the bride and the bridegroom. Anyway, that's us in the squire. But here's where we find the... Put it the... This is where I came upon the notion of the laughing Jesus. It's in the second treatise of the great Seth. Notice what it says in the introduction. The God of this world is evil and ignorant. All his minions are mere counterfeits and laughing stocks. It says, the interpretation of the crucifixion is that of the Gnostic Basilides, as presented by the heresiologist Irenaeus. Simon of Cyrene is crucified in the place of the laughing Jesus. Um, and what this thing is, uh, Bob, is a, it's a kind of um, comedy monologue by Jesus, by the laughing Jesus, anyway, after the, um, 
after the crucifixion. What happened was uh, the laughing Jesus, he's like a kind of wild comedian. Uh, anyway, when this shit was kind of hitting a fan uh, for him, a local um, impressionist chap called Simon of Cyrene said, Lord, Lord, wouldn't it be a, a better idea if they crucified me instead of you, since, you know, thou art the... Uh, the uh, uh, inventor of gags, whereas I'm a mere impressionist, and uh, our laughing lord saw the wisdom of this, and as he says here, it was on Simon of Cyrene's head that they plopped the, the crown of thorns, and um, Simon of Cyrene who got crucified. Meanwhile, um, the laughing lord was kind of high up on a, on a hill, and when he saw that everyone was taken in by this stunt, he just couldn't help laughing. <laughs> but it was no regular laugh, this, evidently. Apparently the thinking behind this is, is, is really rather different to the regular one. The thinking is um, that the creator, that you, that you mustn't muddle the creator with God Almighty. The creator is a mad, balmy, evil, deranged demiurge. And everything which exists in our, in our universe, everything which has existence is evil, nasty, mucky and abhorrent. Um, but God Almighty, they kind of saw as the nothing, not the nothing we know about, but the nothing we don't know about. They're kind of gnostic, I call it the gnothing. And they characterise the, the, the mighty gnothing beyond uh, the world of matter as eternal, ineffable laughter. Hence, really, the only decent thing you could do with your, with your life would be to uh, uh, laugh or encourage laughter. Anyway, when, uh, when, when the, the laughing Jesus saw that everyone was taken in by this, wow, he laughs, and it was such an incredible laugh that it was able to kind of spiral its way through the appallingness of, of matter right through there um, up to the, um, the, the, the eternal, ineffable laughing gnothing. And there was a kind of blowback of laughter and it was kind of in that that he managed to get away and uh, got off as we as we know to uh, live in the south of France with um, a comedian he was seen at the time. time. Anyway, it's always been my notion that there, there should be a movie made about this. One of my queries has always been, who should play him? Who should play the laughing Jesus? There's an extraordinary church not so very far from here. It's, um, it's a kind of a dodgy church. I think it, was, it wasn't consecrated. And there's lots of extraordinary bestial statuary around the thing. Anyway, every Thursday evening at half past seven, round the back of it, they make attempts at um, uh, the conversation with the dead, with uh, leaders of seances and something. The first time... I went there, I was with a, um, a composer chap called Richard Kilgour, and uh, he, he said, I think we ought to go. Anyway, we, we were just sitting at the back to keep out of the way of things, and there was a man there and he had lots of gold on. And suddenly, he was talking to me. He said, you, he said, yes, you, I'm talking to you. And then he, he said, I tell you what I've got here, he said, and he described this uh, one-time girlfriend of mine, Susan Littler, who uh, tragically died of cancer. 
And he, he just described her, and he said, you know who I'm talking about, don't you? And I said, um, yes. And he said, she's saying, why are you shouting so much? He said, that's what she's come to say, why are you shouting so much? I said, I don't know. He, he said, what is it, is it because you're getting old now, is it? He said, you know, so why are you shouting so much these days? I said, I, I, I don't know. He said, is it getting you anywhere? I said, I don't think so. And he said, well, she's suggesting that you don't shout so much. Also, she's saying to me, isn't it about time you put that bathroom cabinet up? God, gee, and that got to me. This is, I was the only man, surely, who knew this. Because I'm not a bathroom cabinet bothered chap at all. I mean, I just happily stick stuff around the bath. But in a house I had had... I had bothered to go down to the B&Q and get myself a bathroom cabinet and I had bothered to stick it up in the bathroom. And then when I'd moved house, I'd taken the bathroom cabinet with me and I'd stuck it under the bed, you know what I mean, waiting for whatever day it was going to be when it was the right day for sticking this up. And I was the only person who knew about this. Anyway, this is what he's saying. Isn't it about time you put your bathroom cabinet up? And he said to Richard, he said, are you with him? Richard said, yes. He said, can you put it up for him? He's never going to get around to it. And then he, then he moved on. He said, little lady there, does the name of Frank mean anything to you, dear? And she said, oh, yes. He said, well, I've got Frank with me now. And Frank's saying, Frank wants to be telling you this, that with that kind of Venetian blind, you've got two pulleys. He said, pull one of them. Just go around saying, you pull the other one. But, gee... Anyways, I don't, I, um, I, I don't go there often, but I was there on another occasion and they had um, um, a very, very talented woman um, running it, running the night. And she was terrific because um, she, she, it was like the, uh, the, the departed came up through her. Do you see what I mean? She kind of did impressions, as it were of the people as they were coming through. And she got Sir Laurence Olivier up from, up, up from his rest. And you could ask questions, you see. And so I, I, I said to um, Sir Laurence, uh, I, I, he was terrific, he was, he, he was as well, so he, he was, he'd come through talking in his Richard III voice. And I said, um, Sir, I said, um, I heard that when you were asked who you thought was the greatest actor of your generation, you'd replied, Charlie Chaplin. And he agreed, yes, he had. Anyway, I know he had in any event. I'd read it in a book. And I said, but are you able to tell us who is the greatest living actor today? And without any hesitation, he said, Jackie Chan. I thought, God, I reeled at that answer. I mean, where did it come from? I thought it was the most extraordinary. And I'd been very lazy about Jackie Chan. I mean, I'd seen a little bit of him on someone's video once. And I thought, well, this is, this is, um, this is probably, this might well be true. And um, so I, in a newsagent, they'd got a, a Jackie Chan video there. I was only a couple of quid and I... I bought it and I put it on and and watched it. I and mean, at that time, I'd only got a little television set like that, and, 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 uh, uh, that took videos. I'm not a video in it. I watched the thing. I thought I thought actually it was quite good. And uh, so whenever I saw them, I got them. And then when I got to uh, watching 
Drunken Master 2 and in Police Story 1, Police Story 2, Police Story 3, I thought, my God, Lawrence Olivier has got it right. I mean, I hadn't realised this about Jackie Chan. I'd always thought that that great old acting had gone forever. You know, the great old acting of Buster Keaton and, and Charlie Chaplin, of course, and... Uh, Harold Lloyd had all gone. Well, it hadn't gone at all. It had merely... It had gone to Hong Kong. And I thought, well, I've got to be watching this stuff on the big screen. And no matter... Uh, 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 no sooner had I uh, announced this, I've got to be watching this on the big screen, than I, I was given an advert to do, a commercial on the television, where they paid me silly money, and I invested all the money in my, uh, my projector so I could project this stuff on a big screen uh, on my wall. Come over here a moment, Bob. This is only part of it. This is, uh, this is uh, part here of my, my grand Jackie Chan collection in here. And uh, I can tell you now who ought to play the Laughing Jesus. Laughing Jesus in my movie should be played by, uh, by Jackie Chan. Um, on... Uh, I'm going back to that that September the 11th, 2001. So I'm not going to go to the 11th. The 11th, uh, as I recall, was a Tuesday. Tuesday. So the 10th was a Monday, the 9th a Sunday, and the 8th a Saturday. Well, on Saturday the 8th of September 2001, I was in Philadelphia because I'd been invited there to do one of my little one-man appearances. And... Um, Shortly before going on, I got talking to this very old man who had a curious accent, and uh, like an Americanish accent, but an odd one. And I said, "I said, I said, where are you from?" And he said, "PEI," and I knew what that meant: Prince Edward Island of Canada. And I said, "Prince Edward Island." I said, "I said, isn't that where that girl's book is set?" And he said, "What Anna Green Gables?" He said, "Yeah." He said, and thank the Lord for Lucy Maud Montgomery, he said, because it's the only industry we've got left on the island. He said, do you know many Japanese? I said, well, what? I said, yes, I know uh, quite a few, yes. He said, how do you find them? I said, fine. I said, yeah, I said, I like them. I get on with them very well. He said, that is surely a statement that would surprise your father. I said, yes, that's right, it is. And he... He told me this, that after the Second World War, there'd been many think tanks set up as to, you know, allied think tanks, as to what to do now we'd won. And um, it was actually reckoned that the bigger problem was the, uh, was the Japs, uh, not, the, not Germany and its Nazis, but the, but the Japs, whether it was actually feasible to share a planet with these fiends. Anyway, it was the Canadians who'd been given the job of trying to think something up. Anyway, the Canadians reckoned it would, would be a good idea to begin with if more Japanese folks spoke English. I mean, we didn't obviously didn't have to learn Japanese because we'd won. But more, more Japanese spoke English. So they set up all these English-speaking classes and courses all over Japan. And as I understand it, these, these weren't optional. You had to go. And being Canadian, as a set book, they used Anne of Green Gables... And this, um, this very fast got, trans got translated into Japanese and very fast became the Japanese's 
most favourite book. It's the biggest selling book and still is today in, in all Japan. If you're asking Japanese folk about this, they don't call it Anna Green Gables, incidentally. They kind of back-translate it as, uh, as Ginger Ann. And um, when you refer to this industry that they've got on the island, I mean, the Japanese are coming in their thousands over to Prince Edward Island, and they get married there. They love getting married there in, in old um, Anne of Green Gables' kit. And the reason that I got on with these Japanese is because of the influence of Anne of Green Gables. It's incredible uh, structure, he was telling me. Like, it's, construction, it's constructed of... of Redemptive vignettes. They said to redeem the Japanese nation. Anyway, after I, I, I was thinking about this, it's an extraordinary story. Now the next day, bear that would be Sunday, eleventh, tenth, Sunday, Sunday the ninth, September two thousand and one. It had been my intention to go and um, see loads of the Philadelphia Fringe Festival shows, see some stuff by some people I been chatting to. But I, uh, in my hotel room I put the television on and although it wasn't at work I knew, I knew in half a minute what they were showing. They were showing Anne of Green Gables. And the first thing I noticed was how funny it is. It's, it's very funny. And the next thing I noticed was that I was crying. I was weeping profusely. You could actually hear my tears hitting the floor. I thought, this is so extraordinary. Then, uh, so I wanted to see what I looked like. So I was able to get to the bathroom and so while still watching the television, to so witness the sight of myself in tears watching it. <laughs> you know, and the, the, the are fitting in. Anyway, it turns out what I was watching was the, the public service channel. And this was fundraising day, so every so often the anchor lady came out to tell us we should ought to be writing um, checks off to the public service channel because, you know, they were so terrific. For example, doing things like today, uh, having an Anne of Green Gables marathon. Evidently this thing was going to go on till midnight, you know what I mean, because it's not just Anne of Green Gables, it, it carries on, Anne of Avon Lee, Anne of, uh, Anne of everywhere. Uh, and, and, and she gets old, older. I think in the books, she, I mean, she winds up a great grandmother or something by the last, uh, in the last book. Anyway, so I didn't go and see any shows. I was held to this. I have to tell you, it was a great wrench to have to go off and perform my last show. And I didn't bother saying goodbye to anyone. Ran back to the hotel and I was able to catch the last bit of it. The next day, the 10th, that was when I was going to be leaving in the evening. And I, I, it had been, I mean, it had been my intention that morning to be going round um, the video stores of Philadelphia to you know, see if they've got any, any Jackie Chan DVDs or videos that I hadn't got in my collection. But uh, I now was on the hunt to get hold of the whole set of these um, Anne of Green Gables, this Anne of Green Gables series that I'd, I'd seen the day before and take them home with me. I did get, um, I did get a Jackie Chan, though. I got uh, his City Hunter. It's a City Hunter, incidentally. It's a thing that uh, Jackie Chan made for the Japanese. You've got a hell of a lot of fans in Japan. And he said, what, what do you want me to do? And they said, we'd like you to convert the City Hunter comics into a film. Uh, to be honest, it's not a great, great movie, but anyway, that was the one. 
one I got hold of. And then I caught well, what was actually going to turn out to be the last plane out of Philadelphia for some time. Anyway, I, um, I got back home in the morning and I rang my, rang my manager up who books me around these things. He said, no, no, he said, don't be talking to me. He said, put the television on. There's something incredible going on in, in, in the States. And, uh, and there was the, uh, 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 the, the second aeroplane flying into the, into, the, uh, into, the, into the Twin Towers. Anyway, I watched that relentlessly all day on the repeats of that. And then um, I, kind of, I kind of had enough. I, mean, I was watching it on me, on, me, on me big screen too. I'd had enough. And um, I thought, well, you know, I'd, I think I'll just watch that um, bit of Green Gables. I mean, I've got an hour and a half of Green Gables that I'd missed. I'd watched that. I still wasn't tired. And I thought, well, shall I, shall I watch City Hunter? And I thought, no, well, uh, I won't. I'm not going to watch City Hunter now. I'm going to go to bed soon. So what, what I did was I, I thought, well, I just watched the bonus extras. Now, and the last of the bonus extras on the DVD of City Hunter, it's got Jackie Chan, his immediate plans for the future. And he was evidently about to be filming imminently the movie Nosebleed in which he's to play the window cleaner of the New York Twin Towers, who falls in love with uh, the waitress in the restaurant or cafe at the top, but they get involved with terrorists who are planning flying stuff into the towers. So that's what it said he was going to do. I said, oh, Christ, this is extraordinary, because, you see... I mean, I mean, I was thinking. I mean, I mean, what videos do um, terrorists watch? I should have thought they watched Jackie Chan movies. So I mean, I did, I did, it said there'd been delays, there'd been hold-ups and hiccups. I mean, they're not going to get on to it. Well, there hadn't been hold-ups and hiccups, and he had made it. Well, I don't think they would have done it because I like, you know, like they couldn't have gone flying stuff into the things. Not after Jackie Chan had stopped it. I mean, I don't know, they'd have done something, but. But uh, not that. What um, a thing I did regarding um, Anne of Green Gables is uh, on the uh, on the Saturday. I, I I wanted to see whether it was merely just a, affecting me this thing. So I invited quite a lot of hard bitten old geezers round. You know, didn't know they're Anne of Green Gables to watch the whole marathon. And um, it was the man from Mossad. <laughs> was the first <laughs> he said I was about, about three minutes in he said I was, he said, I was just going to take a walk around the garden <laughs> he said and then uh, hard bitten playwright John Constable he only writes plays about drug addicts and prostitutes and things he was in floods of tears he said how is she doing this to, to us I said that's redemptive vignettes <laughs> and he I've got these big boxes of Kleenex we were we were handing round. Um, they just to return turn for a moment to the the enemy of mankind. Do you remember his parody to say well, how human life uh, finishes on the planet Earth? It's due to the enemy enemy of mankind, which is which is with, within us, and uh, <laughs> it's. Let's see, let's see 
I've um, I've imported these. Uh, mainly because I think here with these, this is, this is well, I call it the Arsehole Trilogy. You call it the it's American. It's the Arsehole Trilogy. It's um, it's a very good. It's um, which is the first one? Yeah. Um, yeah. Arsehole no more. In this um, in this first book, the uh, the writer Doctor Doctor Crement, Doctor Xavier Crement, eminent proctologist. He's, he's he's doing very well, but but then his wife leaves him. His children won't talk to him, and luckily, someone says, "Well, yeah, it's because you're an arsehole. That's that's why." And he gradually appreciates that so, and takes steps to de-arsolify himself, and sort of forms a kind of arseholes uh, anonymous. And then uh, then in the, in the next book, arseholes forever. It turns out that some some folk are such complete arseholes. Uh, you know, there's nothing can ever be done. But it's how to spot them, how to stop them. But actually, it's how to avoid them is more in arseholes forever. And then there's the third one. It's kind of flawed. The third one, in my opinion, but it's quite good. The the arsehole conspiracy. Anyway, when you read these books, you, you start to see because it's kind of encyclopedic. This you start to realise that the most. Uh, Everybody you know is some kind of arsehole. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and actually, worse than that is you suddenly start to get a little inkling of the kind of arsehole you are. And I'll tell you how Anne of Green Gables works. Anne, little orphan Anne, she reckons, she calls it kindred spirits, is what she calls it. She says, you know, obviously when you've got people in authority over you, you know, you've got to kind of, you know, be wary of them, but don't have, have the minimum to do with them. The only people who matter are kindred spirits. Actually, in other terms, it's this. It's, um, this how a redemptive vignette works in Anna Green Gables. Anne meets an arsehole. Now, sometimes she'll do a prank on the arsehole, and that's good fun, you know, like, you know, arsehole suffering's good. Good, but sometimes, and this is, this is what draws the tears all the time, sometimes the arseholes get a glimpse of what an arsehole they are and take, take, make an attempt to de-arsolify, you know, do some extraordinary nice thing for such an arsehole. That's... <laughs> <laughs> that's how the thing works. Anyway, the, I, I've brought these over to flog around the place because I think this um, gives an inkle of uh, this this concept of the the enemy of mankind. Hang on, I think it's getting sunny. Let's um, uh, let's go go let's, let's go uh, give the dogs a swim. Yeah, Bob. It was about um, a dozen or so years ago. I got a phone call from a TV company. And they said we're making a program. You know, um, we want someone to go around interviewing top-line scientists to find out to kind of represent the ignorance of the British viewer. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I certainly agreed to do the job. It was called Reality on the Rocks. Anyway, the uh, the, the science program, Reality on the Rocks, it went down quite well. So we. Uh, we did another one that was called Brain Spotting. Now, I think the notion of this one was that we were going to inquire as to whether it was uh, at all feasible that there would ever be 
a conscious machine, a machine that had something like human consciousness. And so what I had to do is, first of all, was interview loads of philosophers to find out what human consciousness is. And it, uh, it turned out we don't know, not at, a, not at a deep level, old boy. We actually don't know what human consciousness is. Uh, but it was thought by some that it has something to do maybe with the self. They spell self with a, a capital S. And, 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 and qualia. Now, they told me this. They said, I'm, they said, I'm sad to relate here, Kenneth, but the, the jury has returned on the subject of the immortal soul, and there isn't one. As I understand it, the idea of the self is kind of like what we used to think of as the immortal soul, but it's kind of like a similar thing that you've, you've got, got while you're here, some kind of, uh, you know, like the essence of Ken, you know, the, 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 the Ken, the self. Uh, and qualia, qualia, I, never, I don't know if I quite understood what they were talking about, but there's an American philosopher, he said, well, Ken, he said, he said, you can make a machine that could chew toffee. He said, but, he said, it could chew toffee, this machine, no doubt. He said, but would the machine ever get the same qualia of experience from the chewing of the toffee? Something like qualia. Anyway, the big excitement, though, was when I had to interview Marvin Minsky. I think he, he's the... Uh, guy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I think he's the founder of, of Arti the Department of Artificial Intelligence there. And he's a wonderful little guy. And quite old, I suppose. But he, uh, he wears um, a fisherman's jacket, you know, with all uh, many pockets on it, and all fill filled with things. Listen, I interviewed him in his uh, large bungalow, and in a very large, large room there, like two or three rooms knocked into one, it looked like. And, but you could hardly get through it, because your first thought is he's never thrown anything away. But, but it's not that. I'll tell you what, there were three grand pianos in there, but it looks like, like none of them had been played recently. Also, there were um, old Christmas presents unwrapped of many years ago. And it, but it's kind of like this, you see, that uh, Marvin Minsky's having extraordinary ideas the whole time, you know, so I mean, like, he might have an idea, you know, like, like me talking to you, and all of a sudden Marvin Minsky gets an idea, but he carries on talking about what he was talking about, but maybe, oh, this, <laughs> this, he keeps this, he put it in his pocket, and his idea is in this, and then it goes, you know, somewhere or other in his room, so I mean, I was interviewing him, actually inside his own memory palace, Anyway, Minsky said to me, he said, he said, if, you get, if you're talking to anyone who uses the word qualia, uses the word self, you're talking to a very lazy person. He said, he said, um, he said do you think you've got a self? He said to me. I said, well, I don't know. I said, no. I said, I think so. Sometimes I catch myself thinking that I might have. Yeah, he said, well, I do. He said, it's, it's curious. He said, but I would suggest you haven't got one. It's not like that at all. He said, the problem with those guys is they want to reduce everything down to one simple sentence. He said, he said simple sentences, yeah. He said, but there's a hell of a lot of them. He said, it's like this, he said, you've got many personalities, you're many personalities, some that you'll never meet with in the whole of your life, no doubt, many of them. 
it's a, it's like um it's like you're a suitcase and you know things get jumbled up with it and whoever's on top happens to be on, whatever's on top at the time it it thinks it's um it's the self he said uh, meanwhile he said Ken meanwhile Ken he said we get on me we get on with everything we can get on with he said very good he had big glasses on we get on with everything wonderful guy. Gee, I, love, I, I, I love Minsky. It was after interviewing Minsky, I um, I had a week off, and I, I'd been taking an interest in reports of the Solar Templars. So it was a, a cult that had headed um, uh, to uh, the French Alps and the and the Swiss Alps. I think from uh, French Canada. They'd come, the Solar Templars. Anyway, they'd um, dispatch themselves in, in uh, various bonfires, like a bonfire of 56 had set light to themselves uh, someplace in the Swiss Alps and another large bunch all uh, set fire to themselves uh, somewhere in the French Alps and there was another little party. Anyway, I was looking at this on the map and I noticed that all of the bonfires were equidistant from CERN. And I was wondering as to whether there was any significance in this. You know, maybe the, the nothing. I was thinking of the nothing or the, the g-nothing, the eternal, ineffable, laughing g-nothing that they got at CERN. And I, I told my mate Jeff Merrifield about this. And sometimes he and I, we think we're Norman and Henry Bones, the boy detectives. And so we decided to take off the, that week and have a, you know, have a look round and check this possible CERN connection out and also Jeff had um, had heard of a uh, of, of, an, uh, of another cult also about the same distance from CERN but this time in the Italian Alps and this was the nation of Damanhur and so we called uh, in on them and Oberto said this to me what happened was I, I, I asked him about the self. You know, this is on my mind because I've just been chatting to Minsky. And he, he seemed to agree, that's right, that no, 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 you, you, you haven't got a self. Um, but he said, the reason that you think you've got a self is that you, what you've got is the seating for a self. So you're mistaking the seating for something on it. He said, he said, but you can, you can get a self. He said, and you get, evidently you get a self, you astound a self into being, you know. Like if you get astounded, you astound yourself, you astound, boing, boing, you've got a self there, but it'll only be for a, a moment or two and then it's gone. Is it, if you're going to have, a, actually have a self, you know, rather be a chat with a self, you've got to live a life of continual self-astoundment and when he told me that it made it made some kind of sense of this extravagant achievement in this hole in the mountain i could see why why they'd done it and and while i was talking to alberto i was thinking wow so i am probably talking here with the um only man on the planet who's, who's, who's got a self. And as I was thinking that, I thought, well, I'm wrong there because I, there's another one I have met, and I'll tell you who that is. That's Minsky. Minsky with his grand denial of the self. We get on with everything we can get on with. And so I think um, he's got a self too. Anyway, I was so made up with those uh, Damanhurian folk. 
They're so, so, so extraordinarily bright people. Uh, and are standing their self up. Um, but uh, my mate Jeff, um, he was taken as well, but he had to write a book about it. So Jeff was now to and fro uh, back to Italy, uh, uh, writing this damn her book. One time he comes back and he says, they're time travelling. I said, what do you mean they're time travelling? He said, he said, you know inside the mountain where the this and the that? And I said, yeah. He said, he said well, in there, he said, they've got a time travel apparatus. I said, I said, I said, I said what are you talking about? And they kind of sit around and chant or something and think there's some other when. He said, no. He said, no, they, you know, they like, they go in the thing, they disappear and they're someplace back in time. I said, have you seen them do this? He said, no. I said, I said, listen, I said, to what percentage of likelihood, what percentage of likelihood would you say that they are time travelling? I said, listen, I, I've met a few there. I said, I'll tell you how likely I think it is they're time travelling. 0.001%. I said, what would you give it? And Jeff thought a bit and he said, a hundred. I said, Christ, I don't think you're the right man to be writing this book. I must tell you, this time travelling that they were claiming, it actually pissed me off. Because it's, it's been my thought often that there's gonna, sometime there's going to come a cult, so good, that's going to get it right. You know, I don't think we got it right. I, think, come on, I mean, but they always have to make some daft claim about themselves. 100%. I said, are you the right man to be writing this book? Anyway, it turns out that um, uh, a week or so later, Alberto Eraudi and his Sperity Ananas uh, were coming to London. So I said to Jeff, why don't we take them to visit Dr. David Deutsch? Now, my notion here was Deutsch would listen to their claims of time travelling and, you know, he'd be able to stop Jeff making a fool of himself. Anyway, it was quite comic, I must say, having Esperity and Oberto, because they were so elegantly dressed, apparently in that Italian way, sitting around in all this crap. <laughs> David Deutsch's, there's one moment when uh, Esperity had to go to the toilet. Oh, God, I've been in that toilet. Um, anyway, the thing was, they got, on they got on really well. What perplexed me was that... Um, Dr. Deutsch seemed to be quite happy with the fact that they were time-travelling. What he wanted to know was, had they produced a second copy yet? I mean, his notion being that, um, well, it, well like, if, if I had a time-travel apparatus, and tomorrow I travel back to now, today, well, then, uh, then I'm already here, aren't I? So that makes two of us, and then somehow we, we both go back to the proper time, i.e. tomorrow, and then we can be DNA-tested. And this all, um, you know, proved to one and all that we must have time travelled the production of the second copy. Anyway, Oberto is all laboriously translated through Esperity. He said, well, I don't, I don't know that we can ever produce a second copy. He said, because we, we have not got the technique of going back in time to yesterday. He said, or any time in recent history. He explained to uh, Deutsch that time is in discrete packets. And you've got to get outside your, you know, your, your, your packet of time. So, like, ancient Mesopotamia, yeah, no, no big, big problem. But, you know, like more recent times, times, no. 
Anyway, Deutsch had some other notion of the kind of doing something instead of the second copy, and on it went for hours, this, uh, this uh, style of conversation. And then it was uh, time for the Italians to go. And they invited Deutsch to go and, uh, you know, go and stay there and have a look what they were into and, and all that. And that was all very charming. And then they left. But I looked around at Deutsch's. And so I, I said to him, I said, so what do you think? Do you reckon they are time travelling? And he said, I certainly wouldn't say they're not. He said, they're, they're very bright people. Um, I mean, we'd ascertained early on that they were using other universes in order to get back in time, so they certainly had passed on that. I said, really? I said, so, so what, um, what percentage of likelihood would you say uh, it is that they're time-travelling? And he said, well, he said, he said, actually, he said, I would give it less than 50. He said something between 40 and 50% likelihood that they're time-travelling. I said, Christ. I said, I said, that's high. He said, Kenneth, he said, the universe is way weirder than you know. <laughs> and I said, well, so you'll be going there anyway? He said, no. I said, no. He said, no. He said, he said, I never leave Oxford. He said, it's my view that um, anyone of any worth at some time or another is going to come to Oxford. I'll see him then. I said, Pfft. I said, well, you've got to make an exception here. He said, well, have I got to? I said, I said, well, you've got to, because you've got to go there and come back and tell me for sure whether they're time-travelling or not. He said, these are very bright people. He said, they'd certainly be able to convince me. I said, I'm sure. He said, they'd be able to fool me that they're time-travelling. He said, yeah, you want some stunt like that? You need um, the great James Randi, he said, uh, or something like that. There it was. That's a conversation of some years ago. It's all tape-recorded somewhere. And uh, and then the coming of Esperity and her film script. Now, I would say that Oberto Eraudi is the laughing Jesus. And if there is to be a movie, then Jackie Chan should play him. And I think the script should be constructed um, with... Anna Green Gables type redemptive vignettes. I mean, the thing is, what they'd like now is to move on from their five or six hundred members, like in order to heave up the new plane of reality, the new timeline. They'd like to get considerably more people um, involved on it. I mean, if Jackie Chan uh, plays Alberto, he's obviously going to need some action scenes. I would, I would suggest that we have him break into CERN. And rescue the nothing. He can, he can, he can let the nothing out. The nothing all goes, goes spiralling up through the appallingness of matter. Hit the um, eternal, ineffable, laughing nothing. We'll get a blowback. From, uh, uh, yeah. But I think um, that amazes me about the whole thing is when. Uh, Esperity told me all this stuff about the galactic meeting in 2610 and everything and you know, insectoidal chap coming back through the synchronic timelines and getting born to Mrs. Airaudi pub landlady and Piedmont and all that and everything new timelines is how come 
I just kind of accepted it and said, yeah, I think that's the one to do. It's a funny memory, I thought. It's like saying, well, where was the squire? <laughs> Why didn't he make? And what do you know? That's because the squire... The squire had, um, had met his Anne in, uh, in a hotel room in Philadelphia, and, and there it was, September the 9th. 2001, a, a squire has become a, I don't know, a kind of librarian now. Uh, well, it's, uh, maybe Elsie, you see. Elsie is maybe some kind of vital superhero, superheroine. No, in every generation, one is chosen. She alone will stand against the vampires and the demons and the forces of darkness. Elsie, the arsehole slayer. Ken Campbell, The Seekers Podcast, was produced and presented by Daisy Campbell and David Bramwell, with kind permission from the Ken Campbell estate. Music was by Horton Jupiter. It was funded by Arts Council England. 